0: It's Thursday, October 28th, and you've got Oz in your ears. It's Scorpio on Radio Free, Free Oz up here on Radio. FreeOz.com. Music gets me going. David Osmond, my co-host. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. And David, you said that the next decade is going to be about money. No, the
1: last decade. Oh, the last decade. That's, I can hardly tell one from the other. Well, well, maybe we'll be able to tell. I'm not sure the, yeah. the, we're, if, if we slide any deeper into the abyss of money, the bags of money.
0: Bags. Well, Yes, bags. these are
1: bags of money. Of course it comes in bags. Of course money comes in Bags. Are you Americans too stupid to realize this is how we do business in Afghanistan? Bags of money. Here's one now. Well, come
0: on. Now, well, when, when, mean, we, <laughs> when, we were, when we were bringing money into the Mujahideen back in the 80s, we were using crates. Crates of money. Of money. Crates. They would bring – the CIA would bring in not suitcases. You hear that sometimes. That's more like the, the, the money scandals of the um, – but Nixon administration was about suitcases of cash. You know, this was crates of cash, and now the Iranians are delivering to Karzai bags of cash. Just bags. Well, bags of a cash. million,
1: two million a year. It hardly, you know, it doesn't really count up. We got billions in there. So who's adding? But It's, um, also it, it's mon- easy to skim it right off the top.
0: It's also know? money, David. I, I did a, a, a whole thing on the fact that 3% of the people that made money in 2008 didn't make any money at all in 2009. And 74 people in the United States mm-hmm. earned the equivalent right, of $10 million a day earned the ef- equivalent of an entire eighth of the workforce. Seventy-four people 74 equal people? W- 12.5% of well, the American what I'm workforce. Well, that's
1: It's all about money. And Karzai had it, man. Karzai said patriotism has its, its
0: price. Yes. He said, I have to use it for special things. Well, patriotism
1: has its price. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. And this election it is is a, a title for frenzy
0: of money and also a frenzy of no money. In other words, people are really upset because there's no money, and lots of money are telling people that yes. and giving them the wrong idea of why it's not there. You're right. It's money money money, 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 money.
1: And the money that's being spent is being spent on advertising, which means it's going to the very few conglomerates who own the uh, the networks right. and the the outlets for
0: this propaganda in and, this country. And, and the Congress, soon it will be a lame duck Congress. I guess those are easy to share. Shoot, lame ducks are easier to shoot. Yeah. Uh we'll be deciding whether or not to extend the Bush tax cuts, extend some of the Bush tax cuts. If they extend all of them, it's an extra seven hundred billion dollars. You know, then they're thinking, well, we'll extend it for people from half a million a year down, not quarter of a million a year down. These people are so out of touch. They are so ruled by the plutocrats. They, they, they have got their lips so surgically attached to Mammon's ass.
1: It's amazing. <laughs> You're into it, there, Pete. You're well, it's, into it. it, it it's, yeah, it's that's so the frenzy. Real. That's the frenzy of money. Money we were just told is fungible. Everybody ran to their. Uh, their telephones and immediately looked up West, Webster's diction, uh, dictionary of, of fungible money is fungible. It flood. It goes anywhere. It's it's like a, a, a m- moss or yeah. or or, 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 or rock slime. I wrote that piece about. I rock liken it slime. very much. And, and then people are talking green moss. Mm, p- people are talking about uh, secret money. Yeah. like <sighs> secret money is another kind of money. Don't
0: forget dirty money. Too. Dirty money. Dirty, money. dirty money. Secret money. But you know what money really is? Do you know what money really is, David? Tell me. It's free speech. <laughs> it's free That's speech. That's what it is. Money Those is five speech. mumsers but in the Supreme right. Court right. that decided that money, I don't care if it's a zillion dollars. I don't care if it comes from Rwanda and it's from melting down the ivory of, you know, of, of Holocaust victims. I don't care where it comes from. and I don't care what you do with it. It's free speech and it can't be limited no. without limiting our ability to be real Americans. Okay, we have
1: three uh, three parts of uh, the government, right? We have the Congress and we have the Supreme Court and we have the administration. Right, uh, right, right yeah. the Administration. And, oh, you're right, yeah. you're right. Yeah. So, legislative, okay, if, if they've already taken the Supreme Court, they got it. Now they're supposed to take the legislature. That's two thirds of the government what? being run by bags of money. Bags of money. Get it? I mean, spread the word, wear a button, do something. Yeah. Bags of money. It's, they, it's bought and almost sold. And we'll find out. We'll find out shortly if it's sold. Hey, uh, um, um, all of this is very scary and Halloweeny. Yes. So the uh the comedy calendar today is just a slightly Halloween one. Elsa Lanchester. Oh, I love The Elsa. Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, uh,
0: and also uh, who was she married to? a uh, Barrymore. No, no. No no no, no no
1: no, the other one. Married to uh I <laughs> oh, can't remember oh, now. I saw one of her early yes.
0: almost student films with him. She's a she's a wonderful, wonderful
1: person. She was terrific, She was born yeah. Yeah. and anybody else. Uh, she was born on the 28th, uh eighth, uh, uh, which it is. Yes. And uh, well Dodie Goodman, I don't know if anybody remembers no, they Dodie don't remember Goodman. Dodie. She's an old Jack Parr person from the Tonight Show. Very funny lady too. Yeah. So in the calendar she gets she gets wrecked. David,
0: you know? Those were kinder, gentler times. My man, Paul Krugman, op-edding in the New York Times. He says, If Democrats do as badly as expected in the midterm elections, pundits will rush to interpret the results as a referendum on ideology. President Obama moved too far to the left, most will say, even though his actual program, a health care plan very similar to past Republican proposals, a fiscal stimulus that consisted mainly of tax cuts, help for the unemployed, and aid to hard-pressed states, was more conservative than his election platform. Big surprise, Paul. A few commentators will point out, with much more justice, that Mr. Obama never made a full-throated case for progressive policies, that he consistently stepped on his own message, that he was so worried about making bankers nervous that he ended up seeding populist anger to the right. Well, it's not just a matter of making bankers nervous. The fact is you can't overthrow Wall Street overnight, particularly when you're stepping into an economic meltdown. So let's be a little reasonable here. But the truth is, says Krugman, is that if the economic situation were better, if unemployment had fallen substantially over the past year, we wouldn't be having this discussion. We would instead be talking about modest democratic losses, no more than is usual in midterm elections. The real story of this election then is that of an economic policy that failed to deliver. Why? Because it was greatly inadequate to the task. Well, Perhaps so, but the money wasn't there. The will wasn't there. The fact is the stimulus is genius, but it is going to take a long time to unwind because it is a long-term plan. There was no way in the world that anyone, including Obama, could have gotten a Congress that included a complete naysaying opposition from coming forward with any more reasonable bucks. Remember, TARP was the first money we spent. And it was considered to be a great waste, but of course it saved the banking system, but it didn't do a whole lot in terms of shovel-ready or hovel-ready programs. When Mr. Obama took office, he inherited an economy in dire straits, more dire, it seems, than he or his top economic advisors realized. They knew that America was in the midst of a severe financial crisis, but they don't seem to have taken on board the lesson of history, which is that major financial crises are normally followed by a protracted period of very high unemployment. If you look back now at the economic forecast originally used to justify the Obama economic plan... What's striking is that? Forecasts optimism about the economy's ability to heal itself. Even without their plan, Obama's economists predicted the unemployment rate would peak at 9%, then fall rapidly. Economists are always making those kinds of mistakes. They, they can't get a job if they're known as doom and gloomers. Fiscal stimulus was needed only to mitigate the worst, as an "quote" insurance package against catastrophic failure, as Lawrence Summers, later the administration's top economist, reportedly said in a memo to the president-elect. But economies that have experienced a severe financial crisis generally don't heal quickly. From the Panic of 1893 to the Swedish crisis of 1992 to Japan's lost decade, financial crises have consistently been followed by long periods of economic distress. To avoid this fate, America needed a much stronger program than what it actually got, a modest rise in federal spending that was barely enough to offset cutbacks at the state and local level. This isn't 2020 hindsight. The inadequacy of the stimulus was obvious from the beginning. What we do know is that the inadequacy of the stimulus has been a political catastrophe. Yes, things are better than they would have been without the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. The unemployment rate would probably be close to 12% right now if the administration hadn't passed its plan. But voters respond to facts, not counterfactuals. And the perception is that the administration's policies have failed. So we're going to lose seats over perception, right? That's why spin doctors do so well. The tragedy here is that if voters do turn on Democrats, they will, in effect, be voting to make things even worse. The resurgent Republicans have learned nothing from the economic crisis, except that doing everything they can to undermine Mr. Obama is a winning political strategy. Tax cuts and deregulation are still the alpha and omega of their economic vision. And... If they take one or both houses of Congress, complete policy paralysis, which will mean, among other things, a cutoff of desperately needed aid to the unemployed and a freeze on further help for state and local governments. That's a given. The only question is whether we'll have political chaos as well, with Republicans shutting down the government at some point over the next two years, and the odds are that we will. And we don't need the Republicans to shut down the government for chaos. What we need is unemployed people in the streets. What we need is despair and anguish and pain becoming public. Is there any hope for a better outcome, says Krugman? Maybe. Just maybe voters will have second thoughts about handing power back to the people who got us into this mess. And a weaker than expected Republican showing the polls will give Mr. Obama a second chance to turn the economy around. But right now, it looks as if the too cautious attempt to jump across that economic chasm has fallen short. And we're about to hit rock bottom. Well, it's not because of the Obama's administration inability to take strong and bold moves. They didn't have the power. He's not a dictator, Paul Krugman. He's just a president. He had a party. He had no help from the other side. They succeeded in making him, in quotes, fail. If losing the House of Representatives is Obama's failure, then the GOP's policy of doing nothing and bringing him down has thus far succeeded. One, two, three, four. This from Time Magazine. In 2008, a scary, inaccurate adage made the rounds. Lose your house, lose your vote. It spread after the uh, Michigan Messenger, a publication that described itself as a coalition of longtime progressive bloggers, freelance writers, and professional journalists reported that a local Republican group was planning to use lists of foreclosed homes to keep people from voting. The local Republican chairman quoted in the article denied the plot in the aftermath, but the Obama campaign filed suit to block the party from using foreclosure lists regardless. The case was eventually dismissed in October of 2008 with an agreement from both the RNC and the DNC that foreclosed homes would not be used as a means of challenging voter eligibility. But at least one legal group and some liberal strategists have raised the concern that the presence of new political players could mean a resurgence of old tactics, those new players mainly being Tea Partiers, of course. Wendy Weiser, deputy director of the Democracy Program at NYU Law School's Brennan Center for Justice, was part of a panel at the National Press Club in D.C. that recently discussed various threats to the vote. Considering the historically high foreclosure rates, she says, this incredibly heartless and unfair act is something to be looking out for because it's the first time we've seen widespread ballot security operations organized by people who are not the major parties. Ballot security is a phrase the Republican Party has long used to refer to their battle against voter fraud, but which has come to connote plans of voter intimidation, especially toward minority groups. The seminal case is from the 1981 New Jersey gubernatorial election in which the RNC was accused, amongst other things, of posting off-duty sheriffs and policemen, some of whom were wearing equipment normally associated with law enforcement personnel, such as two-way radios and firearms, at polling places in minority precincts. According to court documents, the officers involved in the program wore armbands emblazoned with a seemingly official title, National Ballot Security Task Force. Despite some allegations, so far there's only been solid evidence of the Tea Partiers holding voter challenger training, none of them using it for nefarious purposes. And although training people to monitor the polls can be a cover for schemes, it is no scheme itself. It also brings to mind the fact that former Chief Justice Rehnquist, when he was a GOP poll activist, was accused of frightening Hispanics away from the polls in Texas. So this could indeed be going on. Well, you
1: know, I think the three big uh, news getting items here in the great Pacific Northwest are, um, you know, policemen who shoot unarmed woodcarvers. That's a big one, Uh, you know. Anything murder is, is really very good. Snow is a big one here. Yeah. Fear and of the big snow Fear coming. of the big snow Fear of the big The snowpocalypse yeah. Snowpocalypse That's what they're called. That's what they're Talking at Snowpocalypse But you know Everybody loves A good drunk teenager Story so long as There's no fatalities Involved yeah, well, Let's hear this Well this day. is the Hot local story And I know it's It's from the, This is the New York Times version of it But you know And I know it's been Everywhere So it's got to be Here too A high high alcohol Drink sickens Students Okay and investigators. Has determined that four loco, that's F O U R L O K O, four loco, a high alcohol caffeinated drink, sickened Central Washington University students at an off campus party this month, resulting in nine hospitalizations. Partygoers had blood alcohol levels that ranged from 0.12% to 0.35%. And you're still standing, gentlemen. Be no, seated. no, they weren't. They were. They uh, were on. They were in beds in uh, the after hospital after consuming four loco. A, uh, a message left with Fusion Projects of Chicago, which makes the drinks. That's yeah. P. H fusion Here. projects, which makes the drink was not returned. And, oh, they out They're drinking. drunk. <laughs> Last month, 23 students were hospitalized at uh, Ramapo College, Ramapo College in New Jersey, after drinking four loco. Now, here's the thing, which has an alcohol content of 12%. No,
0: that's like that's and it, wine. And
1: it comes in a 23 and a half ounce can. So that's like drinking an entire six pack.
0: Yes, and it's loaded with caffeine
1: too. And alcohol, caffeine, and alcohol, caffeine, and alcohol, caffeine, and alcohol, caffeine, and alcohol, caffeine. And alcohol, caffeine, and alcohol, caffeine and alcohol.
0: One in three people has yet to lock onto a choice in the November 2nd congressional elections, according to an Associated Press GFK poll. Yet, in this year of the fed up voter, even these folks offer little hope to Democrats. Despite record political spending and months of frenzied campaigning, one-third of likely voters remain steadfastly undecided or favor a candidate but say they could change their mind, according to the survey. Such a large group might seem like a motherload of opportunity for Democrats, scuffling to unearth enough votes to prevent a Republican takeover of Congress. Yet a close look reveals that these people aren't especially friendly to the party that seems all but certain to lose House and Senate seats on November 2nd. of persuadable voters tentatively prefer their district's GOP House candidate, while 38% pick the Democratic contender, the same 7 percentage point margin Republicans hold with people who have already decided. Compared with voters who have decided on a candidate, those open to change think less of congressional Democrats, are more inclined to oust their incumbent representative, and are more pessimistic about the economy, this year's bellwether issue. I'm very concerned about the lack of jobs and the lack of livable wages, said William McGlumphy, that's his name, William McGlumphy, 64, a retired educator from Dover, Delaware, who is leaning Democratic but is not yet sold. There's a lot of posturing, but no one has come out with a concrete plan that says, this is what I'll do and this is how I'll do it. Maybe because concrete plans take lots of groups to get together and compromise, and there's this thing called feasibility, Mr. McGlumfrey. But okay, let's move on. Campaign operatives and political scientists say most swayable voters end up reverting to the party they usually support. But with an unusual high number of House and Senate races up for grabs this year, scores of them, analysts say, Democrats and Republicans are vying for every fence-sitting voter they can find. Fence sitters are likely to be independents, a bad sign for Democrats in a year when independents are leaning toward GOP candidates. Underscoring their distaste for ideology, just 29% consider themselves Tea Party supporters compared with 41% of those who've picked a candidate. They don't have strong beliefs, said Drew Western, a psychology professor at Emory University who's writing a book on undecided voters. If nothing else, they are pragmatists and want to see solutions and don't care if they come from the left or the right. They're also likelier than those who've chosen a candidate to distrust both parties on the economy and other major issues, the poll finds. Only about half of them express a lot of interest in this year's campaign, compared with roughly two-thirds who have settled on a candidate. But 50% to 40% persuadable voters want a challenger to defeat their own member of Congress. A danger sign for Congress's majority party. People who've made up their minds are more loyal. They lean towards re-electing their incumbent by 53% to 40%. Swayable voters would rather Republicans win control of Congress by 14 percentage point margin rather than the six points by which those who have made up their minds prefer the GOP. They trust Republicans over Democrats to handle the economy by 17 percentage points, while those who've chosen candidates lean Republican on that issue by just 7 points. So the people who haven't made up their mind, all those cussable independents, the ones that people say have thought the issues through and are just practical and are pragmatists, are not that at all. They're just remaining independents and then go to the bar and cause trouble. You know, they're the ones who want to be talked into it. They want to be seduced, and yet all they can see is a Republican Party that's going to do better with the economy. These people are out of their freaking minds
1: so let me get right to the point i don't pop my cork for every guy i see hey big spender spend
0: a little time with me The latest cache of WikiLeaks documents, 391,832 of them, leaked from the Pentagon's secret archives on the Iraq War, are now up in summarized form on the websites of the New York Times, Britain's Guardian, Le Monde, and Der Spiegel. Judging from the excerpts and analysis in the English language papers, the documents contain a few new and interesting things, some of which may not please the war critics who tend to be among WikiLeaks' biggest fans. Well, let's see. First, it seems that Pentagon officials were keeping a log of civilian casualties, though spokesmen frequently said at the time that they weren't. A secret Defense Department report estimated that just over 100,000 non were killed between 2004 and 2009. 100,000 non-combatants. The WikiLeaks document reveals some previously unknown instances of casualties caused by Americans. For instance, a 2007 incident in which an Apache helicopter crew killed two Iraqis who were trying to surrender. More intriguing, this helicopter had the same call sign, Crazy Horse 18, as the Apache that later accidentally killed two Reuters reporters. However, the bigger finding is that, at least according to the Pentagon's secret report, most Iraqi civilian deaths were caused by other Iraqis. The report calculates thirty-one thousand seven hundred and eighty Iraqis killed by roadside bombs and thirty-four thousand eight hundred and fourteen by sectarian killings, notated as murders. The overall number is consistent with estimates by Iraq Body Count, a private organization that attempts to track casualties through media reports. However, an IBC press release said that. After scouring the WikiLeaks documents, the group has seen references to 15,000 deaths that it had not previously reported, thus boosting its count from 107,000 to 122,000. The WikiLeaks documents also bear out claims by some U.S. officials at the time that Iran was playing an active role in supporting Iraqi Shiite militia groups, supplying them with rockets and particularly lethal IEDs, training their snipers and helping to plot assassinations of Iraqi officials. These activities apparently continued after Barack Obama was elected president. This is news. We had no we had no no official idea of this before. Perhaps the most startling document summarized in uh, one of the several New York Times stories about the archive tells of a violent border incident on September 7th, 2006, when an Iranian soldier aimed a rocket-propelled grenade launcher at a US platoon. Before he could fire the RPG, an American soldier killed the Iranian with a 50 caliber machine gun. The U.S. platoon, which had been near the border looking for Iranian infiltration routes, withdrew under fire. Nothing grew out of this skirmish, but this is the first time any mention has been made of a firefight between U.S. and Iranian forces during the Iraq War. Finally, the WikiLeaks documents offer abundant evidence that while some American guards behaved horrendously towards Iraqi detainees at the Abu Ghraib prison, Iraqi police and soldiers have behaved much worse. The documents reveal several instances of U.S. soldiers witnessing Iraqi abuses. In some cases, they tried to stop the abuse to no avail. In one case, a soldier reported an incident to his superior who wrote on the report, no investigation required. Oh, it's just great thinking. Last summer, just before he disseminated thousands of leaked documents on the Afghanistan war, Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, told Der Spiegel, This is something that I find meaningful and satisfying. Th- that's my temperament. I enjoy helping people who are vulnerable. I enjoy crushing bastards. These new documents indicate whether Assange realizes that or not, that not all the bastards are American.
2: Oh, Afghanistan. Save us from Babylon. If they can take your name away, can they take us to It shows Reuters photojournalist Namir Noradan, driver Saeed Jamak, and several others gunned down by U.S. military in a public square in eastern Baghdad. Pilots apparently mistook the camera carried by a newsman for a weapon.
0: Come on, fire. Hey, Roger.
2: After the initial shooting, an unarmed group of adults and children in a minivan arrived on the scene and attempted to transport the wounded. The van was fired upon as well. Come on. WikiLeaks showed photographs of the children in the van who survived. We can infer that these sort of attacks
1: are going on in Afghanistan. But this is the reality of modern warfare.
2: Oh, Afghanistan. Save us from Babylon. If they can take your name away, can they
0: take us to Let The real reason that I think Americans are going to be concerned is that, there, that is that there is no prospect that the mission for which their sons and daughters are being sent can be accomplished. Let me go. Get me to go. Release. Get me to be released. Uh, I would recommend halting the surge uh, and a rather rapid withdrawal of a significant part of the U.S. forces
2: that have been sent into Afghanistan over the last year.
1: I want to go home. You know, the, the men, Afghanistan men, who are in our prisons. They want to go home, too. Oh, Afghanistan, save
2: us from Babylon, if they can take your name away.
0: From the Huffington Post, one out of every 34 Americans who earned wages in 2008 earned absolutely nothing, not one cent in 2009. That's 3% of the workforce. The stunning figure was released earlier this month by the Social Security Administration, but apparently went unreported until it appeared today on Tax.com in a column by Pulitzer Prize-winning tax reporter David K. Johnson. It's not just every 34th earner whose financial situation has been upended by the financial crisis. Average wages, median wages, and total wages have all declined, except at the very top, where they leap dramatically, increasing fivefold. Do I smell a revolution? Johnson writes that while the number of Americans earning more than 50 million fell from 131 in 2008 to 74 in 2009, those that remained at the top increased their income from an average of 91.2 million in 2008 to almost 519 million. The wealth is astounding, said Johnson. That's nearly $10 million in weekly pay. These 74 people made as much as the 19 million lowest paid people in America, who constitute one in every eight workers. 74 people in the country made together as much as one-eighth of the entire workforce. Twelve and a half percent of the entire workforce. Something is really out of kilt. Johnson sees the depressing figures as a result of government tax policies maintained by politicians with an eye on re election, not good government. And there's a ton of them. It is the latest. And in this case, quite dramatic evidence that our economic policies in Washington are undermining the nation as a whole. We have created a tax system that changes continuously as politicians manipulate it to extract campaign donations. We have enabled free trade that is nothing of the sort, but rather tax subsidized mechanisms that encourage American manufacturers to close their domestic factories, fire workers, and then use cheap labor in China for products they send back to the United States. This has caused enormous downward pressure on wages and not just for factory workers. Combined with government policies that have reduced the share of private sector workers in unions by more than two-thirds, while our competitors in Canada, Europe, and Japan continue to have highly unionized workforces, the net effort has been disastrous for the vast majority of American workers. And of course, less money earned from labor translates into less money to finance the United States of America. It's time for a change. A big change. And it ain't going to come from the top. It's going to come from the middle, and maybe, if we're lucky, from the bottom. <laughs>
2: happy its letters and it's getting dimmer
0: Politico delivers a story of complete opportunism. When it comes to the anonymous contributions fueling the tens of millions of dollars in advertising boosting Republican candidates this year, you could say that American Crossroads was against them before it was for them. Earlier this year, when an elite team of GOP operatives rolled out plans for the group and a linked network of other independent conservative organizations, they enthusiastically embraced the idea of public disclosure of donors in part because of a professed commitment to transparency. I'm a proponent of lots of money in politics and full disclosure in politics, Mike Duncan, an American Crossroads board member, said in May during a panel discussion focusing partly on Republican plans, for outside group spending in the midterm elections in the wake of a January Supreme Court decision allowing more corporate spending with less transparency. American Crossroads, the nonprofit group Duncan helps lead, with assistance from Bush area operatives Carl Rove and Ed Gillespie, had recently registered under a section of the tax code 527 that requires regular disclosure of its donors, primarily because of its founders' commitment to full accountability and transparency, explained Duncan, a former Republican National Committee chairman. During the panel, Duncan recalled that we had the board discussion, we talked about the fact that we are going to be ahead of the curve on this, but less than one month after the panel, with American Crossroads entering its fourth month of extensive struggling to raise money from donors leery of having their names disclosed, the Crossroads operative spun off a sister group called Crossroads Grassroots Policy Strategies, or as we know it, Crossroads GPS, which they registered under a different section of the tax code, 501c4, that does not require donor disclosure. With the Crossroads fundraising team, led by Rove, emphasizing to prospective donors the ability to give to Crossroads GPS anonymously, fundraising took off. Through October 12th, more than 57 percent of the 56 million raised by the two groups had come through anonymous donations to Crossroads GPS, according to an analysis by Politico of Crossroads public statements and records on file with the Federal Election Commission and the IRS. The success Crossroads has had in attracting anonymous donors highlights a broader trend on the right in which political activity has increasingly shifted to nonprofit corporations that can conceal donors' identities. This because of those five SOBs on the Supreme Court who decided that money, under any condition, and no matter how it is agglutinated, how much it is hoarded and stored, is free speech. Republican finance insiders interviewed for the story say it is easier to get major GOP donors to contribute when there's no risk of having their identities disclosed and being subjected to either additional appeals for money from other groups or to criticism from President Barack Obama and other Democrats. Yeah, sure, that's why they want to remain anonymous, not because they hide in the shadows 99.9% of the time with everything they do. They live behind an opaque gate. Their life is impossible to penetrate. Whether it's legitimate or not, there is this near hysteria, this belief that the Democrats are going to come after us, quote, unquote, if donors disclose their contributions to GOP allied groups, said one person was asked to donate to the Crossroads Group. Everybody is truly afraid that the Obama administration is going to target them. Uh Uh-huh. To be sure, that did not stop Texas builder Bob Perry from publicly giving American Crossroads $7 million in the last two months, though he was promptly signaled out in a White House blog post asking, who is funding your ads? And what do they expect in return? That's a reasonable question. That's why we have to disclose who's giving all this money. What does Bob Perry expect to get for his $7 million? What, a feeling of being a good citizen who's pitching in? In the closing weeks of the 2010 campaign, Obama and other top Democrats have made the anonymous donors a major focus of their campaign rhetoric, singling out the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Crossroads GPS and suggesting that their undisclosed and perhaps foreign contributions are funding ads that are drowning out the regular voices of regular voters in an effort to install a sympathetic Republican majority in Congress, which happens to be 100% true. And late last month, Senator Max Backus sent a letter to the IRS requesting an investigation into Crossroads GPS and two other big spending GOP allied nonprofits with links to GPS, American Action Network and Americans for Job Security. Yeah, job security, lobbyists, hedge fund owners and other people who risk unemployment if things get fair. Baca suggested the groups, all of which are registered under Section 501c of the tax code, might be violating their tax-exempt statutes, which limit their spending on politics to less than half of their total expenditures. Of course, there is a way to get around that, which is to then spend another 50.1% on non-political issues once the election is over. Really tricky. Uh, It's not the spirit of the law that counts. It's how you can get around it. American Crossroads and its supporters have responded that they They are complying with the law, Uh uh-huh, and that any suggestions to the contrary are politically motivated efforts to undermine their credibility and intimidate their donors. Yeah, the Koch brothers are really intimidated. Mr. Perry in um, Texas, he really intimidated. This has been going on for a long while, Rose said Sunday on CBS's Face the Nation, when asked, Why is the public interest served by flooding our politics with money from people who don't want other people to know they've contributed? Rove added that it's never been an issue until the President of the United States goes out and calls out conservatives at the Chamber of Commerce and the American Crossroads GPS and says these are threats to democracy because they don't disclose their donors. He's right. These are threats to democracy. This is secret government at its worst. Rove continues, inhaling sulfur. I don't remember him ever saying that all these liberal groups were threats to democracy when they spent money exactly the same way that we are. Once we copied what the liberals did, liberals got upset. Actually, it was the Supreme Court's January ruling in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission that allowed corporate funds to be spent right through Election Day on usually critical ads known as independent expenditures and on hard-hitting issue-based ads known as electioneering communications, also known as high-cost trash. Though the decision gave similar latitude to labor groups and liberal nonprofits, Democrat uh, allied groups have struggled to keep pace with the surge of new independent outfits on the right, with the crossroads groups leading their way, airing 28.6 million in ads already, boosting Republican congressional candidates or attacking Democratic ones. Up in state here, state of Washington, they are all over the TV. It is impossible to watch anything without getting 10 crossroad GPS ads or other trash from their ilk. An analysis using data from the Nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics found that Republican oriented groups that don't disclose their donors have vastly outspent their liberal counterparts 121 million to 50 million in the run up to the midterm elections. Overall, conservative independent groups have outspent liberal ones 168 million to 71 million thus far, according to FEC data analyzed by the center. How about that? I mean, they're buying the election. I often wonder when, when things get really this bad and there's that much pus out there in the electoral wound if it won't cause a tremendous reaction and a tremendous spotlight being cast on the people that are doing these things. But then I say, well, who's going to cast that spotlight? Fox News? I mean, really, who's going to take a look? The networks who are always four flushing, who know that they have a license to steal. Who's going to jump on it? MSNBC? One voice in the wind? I don't know. I guess it's up to us.
2: Oh, are
0: well, Dave, according to the BBC, and of course we have to trust it because it's the BBC, a seaside city in Italy is planning to ban miniskirts and other revealing clothing to improve what the mayor calls standards of public decency. Stay, this is Italy. Mm-hmm. This, and this is a okay. seaside, you know, where people seaside, come to yeah. have like, hey,
1: There's, Carlo. Sure, the wind blows up your dress and right. you see your, sw- your bathing suit so the bikinis.
0: Well, sure. if no, you're huh? planning to go to Castle Cas- Castellamare Castella. di Stabia... Uh-huh. Uh, it's trying. To, it's the latest location in Italy trying to make use of new powers to crack down on what is deemed to be anti-social behavior. So wearing a miniskirt is anti-social behavior. I consider it very social behavior.
1: Uh, you may <laughs> yeah. not like where it's going or not, but it's very social. I suggest you drive down Hollywood Boulevard as we did at 1130 on a Saturday night and take a look at what people are wearing. Yeah. Boy, there was certainly no uh, depression going on on Hollywood Boulevard.
0: Anyway, go on here. Mayor Luigi Bobbi Bobbio's, uh, is Said the regulations would help restore urban decorum and facilitate better civil coexistence. Where is this guy coming from? Offenders would face fines anywhere from $35 to $700. Oh, my. Nothing, Depending on the shortness of know, the dress. Nothing to reveal it eh. is the new policy of Mayor Bobbio that he wants to enforce. This is a, a, a it means a new tough dress code that would outlaw mm-hmm. everything from miniskirts to low-cut d- jeans when people walk around his little town. Well... Uh, He's from the center-right People of Freedom Party, certainly not free to wear (laughs) miniskirts, right? says he wants to target people who are rowdy, unruly, or simply badly behaved. What is wearing a miniskirt got to do with being badly behaved unless it induces in him some sort of
1: bad behavior? Well, I think probably that's what it does, don't you think? I mean— yeah the the act of wearing or not wearing any article of clothing is uh, is only an inducement to someone else.
0: Yep, yep. There's also going to be a ban on sunbathing, playing football uh-huh. in public places and blasphemy. And blasphemy. <laughs> the proposals are approved at a council meeting this week. That puts him in line with Singapore. No blasphemy, <laughs> right. no gum, no spitting and he was I think it's the right decision, a local parish priest Don Paolo told the Cronace di Napoli newspaper. It's also a way of combating the rise in sexual harassment, which mm. means if he doesn't have to see a
1: lot of miniskirts, yeah. he doesn't have to go and yeah. harass them. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, <laughs> listen up, folks. It could happen in your state. Soon.
0: Here's George Soros writing in the Wall Street Journal. Our marijuana laws are clearly doing more harm than good. You're right, George. The criminalization of marijuana did not prevent marijuana from becoming the most widely used illegal substance in the United States and many other countries, but it did result in extensive costs and negative consequences. Law enforcement agencies today spend many billions... Of taxpayer dollars annually trying to enforce this unenforceable prohibition. The roughly 750,000 arrests they make each year for possession of small amounts of marijuana represent more than 40% of all drug arrests. Hey, dear white crazy people, stop the war on the flowers. Regulating and taxing marijuana would simultaneously save taxpayers billions of dollars in enforcement and incarceration costs while providing many billions of dollars in revenue annually. It would also reduce the crime, violence, and corruption associated with drug markets and the violations of civil liberties and human rights that occur when large numbers of otherwise law-abiding citizens are subject to arrest. Police could focus on serious crime instead." It would also take a lot of money out of the hands of gangs. It's not like those gangs make money by investing in hedge funds or putting together toxic real estate bonds. They sell drugs, and they sell them because they're illegal. The racial inequities that are part and parcel of marijuana enforcement policies cannot be ignored. African Americans are no more likely than other Americans to use marijuana, but they are three, five, or even ten times more likely, depending on the city, to be arrested for possessing marijuana. I agree with Alice Huffman, president of the California NAACP, when she says that being caught up in the criminal justice system does more harm to young people than marijuana itself. Giving millions of young Americans a permanent drug arrest record that may follow them for life serves no one's interests. Racial prejudice also helps explain the origins of marijuana prohibition. When California and other U.S. states first decided between 1915 and 1933 to criminalize marijuana, the principal motivations were not grounded in science or public health, but rather in prejudice and discrimination against immigrants from Mexico who reputedly smoked the killer weed. There was also the anti-African-American idea that black men used marijuana to seduce white girls. It's all there in the movies and the propaganda. Who most benefits from keeping marijuana illegal? The greatest beneficiaries are the major criminal organizations in Mexico and elsewhere that earn billions of dollars annually from this illicit trade. And who would rapidly lose their competitive advantage if marijuana were a legal commodity? This was just one reason the Latin American Commission on Drugs and Democracy, chaired by three distinguished former presidents, Fernando Henrique Cardoso of Brazil, César Gaviria of Colombia, and Ernesto Zadillo of Mexico, included marijuana decriminalization among their recommendations for reforming drug policies in the Americas. Why aren't we listening? Why isn't Obama on the phone with these people? Like many parents and grandparents, Sora speaking, I'm worried about young people getting into trouble with marijuana and other drugs. The best solution, however, is honest and effective drug education. One survey after another indicates that teenagers have better access than most adults to marijuana and often other drugs as well and find it easier to buy marijuana than alcohol. Legalizing marijuana may make it easier for adults to buy marijuana, but it can hardly make it any more accessible to young people. I'd much rather invest in effective education than ineffective arrest and incarceration. California's Proposition 19, which would legalize the recreational use and small-scale cultivation of marijuana, wouldn't solve all the problems connected with the drug, but it would represent a major step forward, and its deficiencies can be corrected on the basis of experience. Just as the process of repealing national alcohol prohibition began with individual states repealing their own prohibition laws, so individual states must now take the initiative with respect to repealing marijuana prohibition laws. And just as California provided national leadership in 1966 by becoming the first state to legalize the medical use of marijuana, so it has an opportunity once again to lead the nation. In many respects, of course, Proposition 19 already is a winner, no matter what happens on Election Day. The mere fact of it being on the ballot has elevated and legitimatized public discourse about marijuana and marijuana policies in ways I could never have imagined a year ago. These are the reasons I have decided to support Proposition 19 and invite others to do so. Unfortunately, the polls show Proposition 19 is suddenly in real trouble because of a lot of negative advertising— Who is paying for the negative advertising? Who actually benefits keeping marijuana illegal? I'll tell you, it's not the growers. Oh, they know that legal marijuana will cut the wholesale cost of marijuana in half. We all know that. But they're not the ones putting up uh, subversive dollars. Somebody else doesn't want it to happen. And I don't think it's just a bunch of crazy Christians.
1: Well, Peter, I know that you had uh, an interview with Daniel Ellsberg himself not so long ago. No, not very long ago. And I think you should get him back. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, with uh, uh, Assange, Julian Assange, Assange. Yeah, Hmm, right. Where does that name come from? It's so mysterious. Anyway, speaking in a news conference in a London hotel, a stone's throw from MI6, uh, was joined by Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, revealed here as being 79 years old, the former military uh, analyst who leaked a thousand-page secret history of the Vietnam War in 1971 as the Pentagon Papers. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be like they are on NPR. You don't know this, you fool. I'll repeat this information again. Anyway, uh, both men hit out at what they described as the Obama administration's aggressive pursuit of whistleblowers, which Mr. Ellsberg said put the United States on a path to the kind of repressive legal framework that Britain has under its... Official Secrets Act he said the criminal investigations under President Obama of three Americans accused of leaking government secrets represented a new low. He also said that the pentagon 's demand that Mr. Assange return any classified materials return is in heavily in quotes here return any classified materials in his possession was carefully couched in language similar to that used in the aftermath of the Pentagon Papers release when he was threatened with criminal prosecution for espionage. Secrecy, Mr. Ellsberg said, is essential to empire.
0: What's that all about? Well, I, I know we've come to the end, but it's never really the end until we put a kind of a poetic basin under all of this I don't know, all of this drippings of the last hour or so.
1: Well, the thing about poets, and I was thinking about, I was actually thinking about this making the bed today Mm. at at home. I was thinking, why aren't there any poets out there who are speaking out? I mean, at the beginning of the war, there was Poets Against the War, and we did uh, a program uh, of of them and that. But I mean, you know, Allen Ginsberg marching around the Pentagon with everybody hoping it would rise out of the ground. and You know, that that level of engagement. No poets out there doing that kind
0: of thing. Because the poets don't know anybody who's in uniform anymore. Their buddy has not gone off to Vietnam. Their cousin has not gone off to Vietnam. The people that are fighting in AFPAC have no friends who are poets.
1: You know... I think you're right about that and I think that uh, that the army would admit that that would be the truth. Yeah. Don't yeah, you right. Think? yeah, right. Don't no don't. No, no Bill Maldens out there anymore. Yeah. Don't versify, don't rhyme. All right. So, let's listen to uh, a a poem by uh, Lu Kue Meng. He died in 881. His his birthday is unknown. Well, that's a long time ago. But his
0: birth birth year
1: or death year is known. Yes, 881 A.D. Fisherman on a Southern Stream. I'm naturally lazy, carefree. A secluded spot is what I like. River flows north of the village, Heart craves for aimless wanderings, my rustic house far away from others, lonely and isolated, myself given to loftiness. Going out, I first grip a bamboo staff, meeting people I do not bother with a hat. On the southern stream is a fisherman who frequently takes children to visit me. I asked him how he fished. He answered truly in words of wisdom, From the start, I've speared fish and turtles. Since I was a lad, right through to old age, their hideouts are second nature to me. Thoroughly, I know the secrets, so I'd warn my people. Heaven's gifts are not to be abused. Reckon carefully, whether to spare or to kill the big or the small. Wait for them to grow, multiply, and reap the reward. All day, I hunt fish for profit. And yet fish have never been exhausted. We are housed together between sky and earth. To abandon benevolence is to wrong heaven's bounties. When I think of government officials, I feel this idea is hard for them to grasp. People all die from extortion and fleecing, none willing to show them pity or grief. This year, rivers and marshes go dry. Last season, mountain springs flooded. Pleas and complaints fill the court like the cawing of birds to my ears. As, for instance, in the raising of chickens and ducks. Surely you'll let them lay eggs and brood. Mencius ridiculed the man of Sung, blaming him for hastiness in tugging rice sprouts. I admire the fisherman's wise words in harmony with the teaching of the sages. If I meet an official who collects poetry, I'll dare to show him in all sincerity this little piece.
0: Well, I hope he does. And we shared it with you. (laughs) Be with us again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow as Oz forges on in these, as the Chinese say, cursedly interesting
2: times.